Well, you've come a long distance. It's uh, to your credit to make the effort to come so far to come to uh, a place like this where spiritual practice is the center of everything. It's like uh, going to on pilgrimage. Good use of one's uh, desire to travel. We have to move in this world. We like to move in this world, so if we can move in such a way as to make spiritual advancement, then that's uh, certainly very, very positive. There are many desires. We live in a, in a sea of desire. We are in effect, materially speaking, and ultimately spiritually speaking, we are our desires. So with a, if, with a little bit of knowledge, then we may see fit to adjust our desires and thereby our existence. So knowledge is helpful. But everything rests on desire. Our passions our desires. Mostly in the world, people desire in a very basic sense two things. To be happy and to avoid distress. The world's moving in that way. Desire to avoid distress and desire to be happy. And in the context of that, then there are so many varied expressions of each of these two wings, so to speak, with which we try to fly and get off the ground in this world, make something out of ourselves and of our lives. Do you follow me? And then further it could be said that desires in this world could be divided into, into three within the context of these two directions that I'm mentioning. Those would be, those divisions would be desire to gratify oneself, to taste something, to see something uh, pretty, uh, to feel something, or again, to avoid feeling something that uh, may be unpleasant, perceived as unpleasant. So desires to gratify one's self, and, and by self I mean uh, one's, uh, one's senses, one's eyes, one's ears, the tactile sense for touching, tasting. We have five senses by which we perceive things. We perceive forms with our eyes, we perceive sounds with our ears, tastes with our tongue smells with our nose and feelings uh, touching things we, we get sensations and then of course we have the mind which is sometimes called the sixth sense and then that mind makes determinations based on the input that's gathered from the other five senses the smells and the sounds and the forms and the tastes and so forth that we get through these senses, they, they, 
they send a message to the central computer of the mind, so to speak. And the mind makes a determination about those experiences. It says, that's good, or that's bad. I like this, I don't like that. This makes me happy, this makes me sad. You follow? And that determination of goods and bads and happies and sads creates a, a persona that we call me. I like this, I don't like that. I think this is good, I think this is bad. I think that's hot, I think that's cold. Or we say, I feel this. I think. But it's really all uh, a determination that's made by the mind from the input gathered through the senses. Now, there's a problem with this and the identity that, that is derived from it. The problem is that while you, for example, Ali, mm-hmm. Ali, while you may sit here and feel through your tactile sense that it's cold, you might feel that it's warm. So each of those determinations are relative to your sense of touch and your mind and your sense of touch and mind. Do you follow? So the question remains, what's the question that remains? Which is it? Is it hot or is it cold? These are our judgments. You've heard the term non-judgmental. We are constantly placing judgment, making judgments about the environment. And the instruments by which we make those judgments are our minds and senses. But those judgments, as much as we stand behind them and feel strong about them and so forth, they're not absolute, are they? They're relative. They're relative to the suit you're wearing, the body that you have that's made up of senses and the mind that you have. And your determination will be different than another's determination. So we can't get through such determinations at an absolute. You understand what I'm saying? The real, true nature of being and the experience. Although we feel and we think that through the medium of our minds and senses, we're acquiring information, knowledge, and understanding of the nature of life and being. The fact of the matter is, what we're doing is making judgments, placing judgments on the environment. We're categorizing the environment, and in doing that, we're actually moving away from a real understanding of the nature of the experience. Incredible <laughs> to think about. Hmm? In other words, that's what we call illusion. And we are, uh, as much as our knowing and our sense of being is tied to that process that I've just described, and we're living in a, in a virtual reality, if you will, and to use computer language, 
you know, when you put on the, I don't know, it's, you know, what do they call them? goggles or something like that, and the computer, and then you're, you're inside the computer world. You're really just standing in one place, but everything that's going on in the computer world, you're experiencing. Well, but it really has nothing to do with you, does it? You're being chased by somebody in the in, in, in the virtual reality, but you're standing safely, actually. And there's nothing to be afraid of. You follow me? So, in the same way, the sense of self and the sense of what the world is and, and all that we have based on this method that we're prone to being embodied, we have senses, we have a mind, and they're functioning. And they're functioning in such a way as to, with our, due to our identification with this, to lead us to believe certain things about life, like we might be, we are led to believe that we're in danger, that we could die. We're led to believe we could die. That's one of the big problems. <laughs> there are other things that we're led to believe as well. But this is a big one. We're led to believe that we, at some point we may not exist. Therefore, we have to get busy. We have to take from the environment and get what we can to provide for ourselves. And there's a struggle for existence that goes on. But the whole struggle is an illusion. There's nothing to struggle about. You don't die. But then what are you? That's the question. Are we this combination of senses and mind and so forth? That as we've discussed, get in the way of knowing. They are only a means to know something. Some true things you might get, but the whole picture that you get from that is not correct. It's not accurate. That picture, in effect, obscures what we really are because it's projecting another picture, a different picture, a virtual reality. So, if the senses and if the mind are imperfect instruments of knowing, then they're hardly the knower. They're not even perfect instruments of knowing, what to speak of being the knower itself. Do you understand? You can know, and there may be instruments by which you're helped to know. But these instruments, mind and senses, are imperfect instruments. They don't give us conclusive knowledge. Neither are they the knower. So who's the knower? That's us. Who is the real feeler? Who is the real seer? Do the eyes see? Do my glasses see? No. Right? They have some value for seeing because there are eyes behind them. Similarly, do the eyes see? No, the eyes don't see. But someone, consciousness, is the perceiver. You follow what I'm saying? Consciousness experiences and matter is experienced. I'm a conscious being. I'm experiencing the experience of sitting in this chair. What's the chair's experience? It's not conscious. So what is the question of experience? Experience that is the uh, relative to consciousness, is the prerogative of consciousness. 
something that's unconscious, what will it experience? You follow me? So we are the experiencer, and we are consciousness, not matter. But we've identified ourselves with matter in the form of this body made up of senses and mind. And in that virtual reality, we're getting a picture of ourselves that appears like matter in that, for example, as I'm saying, it appears threatened. All material forms are here today and gone tomorrow. So it appears like we, we're here today, but we'll be gone tomorrow. That's an appearance. But we have no experience of not existing. Do you have any experience of not existing? The only thing that would lead us to think that we might not is the perception that it comes through these imperfect instruments of mind and senses. We want to base things on experience. You have no experience of not existing. You could say, I have experience of somebody else not existing anymore. But all you were really privy to was that person's body and mind, their senses, that sense of self. The person who was experiencing, who himself or herself never experienced not existing, you're not privy to their experience once their body is no longer here. That's part of the illusion of the virtual reality that's brought on by the, these, these, uh, the perception gathered through these instruments of the mind and senses. So desire, desire, desire to avoid things that are um, not pleasurable and to pursue the things that are pleasurable. This is how we're moving one type of desire to gratify ourselves. Second type of desire, within the two types, again, of trying to enjoy and trying to avoid distress, one type within that, those two, is to just gratify one's senses. Second type of desire is to accumulate power, to offset and to the desire to work against the appearance of death, the appearance that I might not exist at some time. So to gain, gain some power base, to get, to get some money, for example. Money provides some sense of security, right? That's power. That's what I mean by that. Power, security, money, or position, better education, better job. It might be tied to uh, a family. There's a sense of security in that also. The third type of desire, first being to gratify oneself, second to accumulate some, some power, some security. Third type of desire is the desire to be virtuous, to do things because they're, they're the right thing to be done. As they should be done, even though it may appear that by doing them, I may lose. There's a famous tennis player, uh, American tennis player, who recently, in a match, the judge said that his opponent 
the ball was out of the court. And I guess the ball makes a mark because they dust the balls or something like that. And so then the, the American tennis player was called to look and give his own determination. He said, I, I think it was in inbounds. And so he could have said he thought it was, he agreed with it. Apparently this is the system in tennis. If, if he had agreed with the judge, it would have been dismissed and, and uh, his opponent would have lost that match or serve or something like that. But he did the, you know, he did the virtuous thing and, and he lost the match. So by living, uh, by pursuing the desire of to be virtuous, there may be an appearance of loss sometimes that comes, but there's a subtle kind of material gain in that. You follow? By becoming more wholesome and virtuous person gets a sense of contentment, fulfillment, happiness, of having done the right thing. That's not tangible. You can't hold it up and, and say, here it is. This is what I got for what I did. Like the person who pursues power, acquisition, and so forth. He got something. The person who just pursues gratification at the cost of everything else, he's really on the lower end of the spectrum. You follow? The person that just... You know, sometimes they used to say when I was a kid in school, girls would say, that guy's just an animal. I don't know that anymore, but it was a guy who just, you know, was an animal. He just wanted to gratify his senses. That's all. He had no other interest. So they would appropriately call him an animal. It's the lower end of, of humanity. Those people who just want to gratify their senses which is so often so unbecoming. You understand? It's so unbecoming. It's, it's <coughs> greed, lust, and so forth. It's not pretty. You, you do something greedy, then you get embarrassed afterwards. It's an, it's, a, it's an embarrassing type of thing. So just to live for gratification of my senses is really the low end of the world of desire in material existence. And it's not productive even of material progress, or to speak of enlightenment. It's the life, if you will, of a two-legged animal. Because animals don't have the capacity in that form, the soul doesn't have the capacity to discuss these types of things and pursue something more meaningful. So if a human being who has that opportunity to do so forgoes that just to gratify his senses, it's, it's very unbecoming. In between that end of the spectrum and the life of virtue is material acquisition. The problem, however, with all three of these, desire for gratification, desire for power, and the desire for virtue. To be gratified, the desire to be gratified, the desire to be secure, and the desire to be virtuous. All three of these, uh, at their root, have one problem. What is the problem? Yeah, the desire to be any of these things is a problem because the fact of the matter is we already are something.
but we are trying to be something. We already are something. Like I said earlier, as far as security, what security does the soul need? <laughs> you can't burn it. You can't drown it. You can't cut it. You can't kill it. But because we've identified with the body, then and that won't endure, then we have a perceived need, and therefore the desire to secure it. Sometimes we forego the, the desire to secure it in the name of gratifying it. Hmm? And we do things that are not in our interest. Just like now they have program for safe sex. It means better factor some security into your desire, into your gratification desire. Otherwise, you may end up with, uh, with, uh, with AIDS or something like that. You follow what I'm saying? So sometimes at the, in the pursuit of gratification, it's at the cost of material security and certainly at the cost of material virtue. But the fact of the matter is, just as the soul or consciousness is secure, consciousness is also happy in its pure state, uncovered from this, unplugged from this virtual reality that I'm talking about. Soul is, is a unit of happiness. In matter, there's no happiness. There's no happiness inherent in this. What makes this chair have any connection with happiness is if I'm happy sitting in it. <coughs> I'm consciousness, right? I'm a unit of consciousness. If I'm happy sitting in it, then this has some connection with happiness. To the extent that I extend myself into the chair or any material thing, that material thing takes on a semblance of the qualities that are really inherent in me. Again, we're in the virtual reality here, so what we're all about, really, is being manifest in this virtual reality, but in a distorted way. We have to sort through the virtual reality and find out, why should I pursue this desire to be gratified when actually, in reality, I'm a unit of happiness that far exceeds any happiness that can be derived from mixing it up with things that don't endure. After all, let's say I think that I get happiness from something material. Like I have, let's say I have a car and it gives me happiness. The reason it gives me happiness is because I think it's my car. It means I'm in it, right? I projected myself into it. It's mine. By the word my, I've projected myself into this lump of metal and rubber and plastic. And so because I'm identified with it, now it has some, it seems to be gratifying me, right? But the problem with this, of course, is that that car will disappear one day. It'll break down. Maybe to get an accident. The same car will be causing me distress, won't it? So it is with all material things that we think we're getting happiness from. We're getting happiness from them because we've injected ourselves into them. But the problem with that is that those things don't endure. And when they disappear, break down, or change, they turn into a cause source of my distress. 
So the real nature of the material existence is distress, distressful, not joyful. Because all of it, all manifestations of matter are here today and gone tomorrow. And if you're attached to them, you say, well, Swami, I happen to like my car. I said, well, good. When it's gone, then it'll be all that worse. It was much worse for you when it breaks down. The more you're attached to it and think you're getting happiness from it, the more it's becoming a problem for you. You follow what I'm saying? So, at close, at close look, under scrutiny, matter has no capacity to really afford happiness. So, if there is any happiness, it must be in me. The very idea of happiness comes from consciousness. Ideas come from consciousness, not from matter. The very pursuit of happiness comes from consciousness, not from matter. So, while I'm pursuing happiness in relation to matter, what I'm really pursuing is myself. But I'm looking in the wrong place for it. I'm looking in a virtual reality. So, the desire to be happy, that's an illusion. We are a unit of happiness. And we are so happy when uncovered from this virtual reality that no matter how good that virtual reality could be, and we're always trying to make our virtual reality better, give us more gratification, make us more secure, and we may factor some virtue into it also, and wisdom. No matter how nice we make the picture, it, it, it cannot compare at all. They're categorically different, the kind of happiness that you could get from that, and what that which is inherent in the self when it's uncovered, unplugged from this virtual reality. So the desire to be gratified, the desire to be secure, and even the desire to be virtuous, all based on a distorted picture in which the fact that I am a unit of happiness, I am secure, and that the soul consciousness by its nature is, uh, is uh, virtuous virtuous and means wise also. The soul is wise. The soul is enduring, so it's secure. And the soul is joyful. We call that sat, means it endures. It's real. It's real, so it's not here today and gone tomorrow, so it's secure. Chit means it has wisdom inherent in it. And ananda, joy, ananda. This is the nature of being. Now see how far we are absorbed as we are in this virtual reality in pursuit of things that are inherently within us and looking for them outside of ourselves to such an extent that the picture we get and the apparent knowledge and understanding that we get all obscures what we're really after, ourselves. Hmm? Now, among these three desires, the desire to gratify oneself, to find security for oneself, and to be virtuous, the rest of them, materially speaking, obviously, is, is to be virtuous, from which wisdom will come. And so if we pursue the virtuous type of life, then the ingress of wisdom will lead us to the kind of discussion that we're having, ultimately, and the understanding that 
there is something, and it's me, that lies beyond even uh, a virtuous life in this world. And in order to arrive at that life, that existence beyond even a, a virtuous life in this world, we have to do something that's not material. We have to do something that's spiritual. We, that, and that's what spiritual practice is about. A way of like unplugging this virtual reality. And as it's unplugged, these desires, these, these perceived needs start to disappear. And the self that's full of joy, wisdom, and uh, is eternal, secure, it starts to come out. Now, there's nothing that I can hold it up and show it to you. Here it is. We just live here in the forest, you know. <laughs> we get up in the morning, sing these songs, and you might know, come and hear it, not even understand what's, what's going on. But this is all part of yoga. It's kind of yoga, spiritual practice. And this is what it does for us. So someone can come here and say, they live in the forest, it's a nice, nice place, and it's nice. Not much going on there, though. But beneath it all, under the surface, so much going on for those who are participating in the spiritual environment that's created by the spiritual practices and teachings and so forth. This is a nice setting for it, but it is more profound and uh, deep and uh, meaningful than the forest, than, than the setting. You follow? This is a setting, a good setting for spiritual practice. But what we do here is, there are other people living in the forest too. Birds are chirping and there's deers and so forth. We're doing something a little different in the forest. We're, we're excavating our self. And as we do that, what we find about the self, that it's sat, chit, ananda, it's eternal, it's, it's cognizant, and it's full of bliss by nature, we find something else also. We find that it's a particle of these, these, these three things. Joy, existence, and knowledge. It's a particle of it. Like there's particles of, of light from the sun. And those molecular particles of light from the sun, they are the same in constitution as the sun. Right? Just a molecular, par molecular particle of the sun. But the molecular particle of the sun, being non-different inherently and constitutionally from the sun, nonetheless is different from the sun also. How is it different? It's only a molecular particle. So, we can be close to a molecular particle of the sun, but to get close to the sun would be a problem for us, right? Today is a, is a partly cloudy day. So what do we learn from that? We learn that sometimes it looks like there's no sun, right? But because we're a little intelligent, we know if we flew above the clouds, the sun is always there. But it appears to us that there's no sun. Similarly, in this world, sometimes it may appear to us that there's no God. That's kind of a cloudy day in virtual reality. <laughs> And at the same time, 
when we talk about God, what are we talking about? What we're saying is that we're particles of consciousness, but we're only particles of consciousness. And therefore, we're subject to this virtual reality. Like, there are rays of the sun right now that are here. Separated from the sun by the clouds, they've, they've passed through the sun, but there appears to be a separation between them and the sun. You follow what I'm saying? So the cloud is the illusion that produces the virtual reality. The sun is God. And some particles of the sun are underneath the cloud. And although they're giving light to this world, they're thinking that the world has the light. Light's in the world. They're pursuing material things, dead things, matter, in pursuit of joy and security and virtue and so forth. As much as they excavate themselves from this cave of darkness of material existence, it is as much as they connect themselves then with the sun. It's always shining above the clouds. My point is this to you. We're a particle of consciousness. I've said that consciousness is superior to matter because consciousness is the experiencer and matter is experienced, right? But if you're a particle of consciousness and superior to matter, then what are you doing in this virtual reality? You're superior to matter. How did this virtual reality, which is material, take precedence over your life? That's the question. And the answer is that although we're a particle of consciousness, we're very small. And therefore, in relation to matter, our vision can be obscured. Like a particle of sun can appear to be separate from the sun. It's not really separate from the sun. But by the cloud's influence, that particle appears to be. But the sun never is subject to that virtual reality. Do you follow? The sun produces the cloud of illusion. The sun is always shining. Hmm? So the fact that we're consciousness, but the fact that we're, and superior to matter, but the fact that we're now bewildered by matter, says something more to us about ourselves. says that we're only a particle of consciousness. And so if we're a particle of consciousness, and small in size, therefore prone to this predicament, there must be a reservoir of consciousness. And so with self-realization, real self-realization, through a spiritual progress process, comes God-realization also. And although, as I said, we are units of joy and security and, and wisdom, the amount of joy and security and wisdom that's found within us far exceeds anything that you could derive from matter. Matter really is inherently not happy. It's not inherently knowledgeable, and all its forms are, like we said here today, and gone tomorrow. So, although the self, as I've explained, is vastly superior in terms of happiness, security, and knowledge in relation to matter, it's vastly inferior with regard to these things in relation to God, the reservoir. It's like a particle of sun. It's got everything the sun has, but compared to the sun, wow. So, therefore, in the pursuit of happiness, etc., it's in our interest, number one, 
to unplug the virtual reality and see ourselves and do so in such a way that we simultaneously develop a connection with the source of consciousness, the reservoir of consciousness. That's what we call love, actually, to have a relationship with God. We call that love because by having a relationship with God in love, then we can have absolute love, like they say, unconditional love then. Because we have, we'll have knowledge also. You know how to relate to things in such a way that really fosters love, and that's about giving. If we don't know, we may do something in, with a good intention, but it may be bad for somebody, right? You might have good intentions, but if you don't know what's wrong with them, you might hurt them. So this is what we are in, involved in here. So rather than trying to be any of these things, we try to be ourselves. Number one, and if there's anything to be, then we want to be in relation to God. Why should we, a unit of joy, eternality, and knowledge, try to make a, a, a union and a relationship with matter, which is the antithesis of ourself, in which there is no joy, in which there is no security, and in which there is no real knowledge? doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, on the other side, we've got a reservoir of the very things that we're made up of. We should make a relationship with that reservoir. And, of course, it, it goes by the name Krishna. <laughs> this is the idea. That's a whole other, you know, discussion. Does it make sense? You can understand a little bit? Mm -hmm. This is a very basic idea kind of a conceptual orientation that if you get this kind of conceptual orientation to life and you get in an atmosphere and environment where that is fostered that conceptual orientation will beget a type of acting that fosters realization of those truths experience of those truths we all have a conceptual orientation to life and according to our conceptual orientation, we act. And according to how we act, there are fruits, there are results. So here we give a particular conceptual orientation that then fosters a particular type of activity that gives a particular type of fruit. That's very different from the fruits of, of, of material life based as they are on a particular conceptual orientation. What's the conceptual orientation of material life? Oh, I'm from, um, you know, California. I'm California. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a daughter. I'm black. I'm white. These are conceptual orientations within the virtual reality. And then we act accordingly. And then we make <coughs> judgments on the environment and so forth. And, and we really distance ourselves from actual knowing, actual experience. Hmm. the nature of existence. This is heavy stuff here. If you think about it, it's about dismantling a whole sense of self that we have of ourselves, that we're pursuing. It's just madness. <laughs> it's madness. It can't endure. 
and neither is it making us happy. That's why we're so bent on changing it, altering it, adding to it. You want to add on to our life. If I just get this, if I could just get that guy or that girl or this job or there's always this prospect, if I could just add this on or that on, then I'd be perfectly happy. But all this attempt to add on is what's causing the problem. What I'm saying to you is, <coughs> you're living in a virtual reality. I pull the plug. That's what yoga is about. That's what spiritual practice is really about. Of course, then, we're addicted to that virtual reality, so it's easier said than done. But if we can keep good company of people who are progressive in this regard, of unplugging that plug, that's the best thing we can do for ourselves. Because that will, that will wear off on us, that will rub off on us, that will affect us. You will think about this to some extent. Maybe you will walk out of here and go, oh, I didn't get that, or that was, you know, some of the things he said was okay, but anyway, let's go do this, or, <laughs> or that, or whatever. But sometimes it will, it will come to your mind. Yeah, Swami said that, yeah. Those are valuable moments. That's the value of association with people who are involved in this kind of thing. That is, that's so valuable. Before it said, just a moment's association with such people can change your life. Maybe it won't change it, but it will be the catalyst that ultimately changes your life for the better in the direction of perfection and enlightenment and real love. That is a thing that will change your life, that association. Because while we're wandering in this virtual reality, some people are in the virtual reality, but they're not plugged into it. You follow what I'm saying? Like they say, lotus leaf. You know what a lotus is? It, its stem is in the mud beneath the water, and its leaves lie on the water. So the lotus leaf is in the water, but it's not of the water. It's floating above the water all the time. So there are people that are in the virtual reality, but they're not of it. Those are good people. To meet those people, that's like life-altering experience, even if we don't know it at the time. Not only what they say, but the way they are, and the way they be, if you will. What motivates them, what, what's happening to them within, that self coming out. That will affect us in some subtle way, that kind of company. And that is the thing, therefore, will change your life. Therefore, it's a, a moment's association with such persons can change the course of your life. One moment, then another moment will be added, more moments, then you start to become one of those people. So you've come such a long way to come here. And I wanted to try to say to you that I think it's worthwhile. <laughs> there you go. A long distance, driving many miles, and so forth. It's worthwhile. You may come and say, well, what do we come here for? It's not even a sunny day. Southern California is more, it's nicer, and it's out there in the forest, and I didn't like the food, or who knows what, you know. <laughs> but there's some value in it here. And uh, your father's uh, good to bring you here. He has, he has some sense about that. Therefore, he, if you all show any interest, and he immediately wants to say, well, the kids want to come, I should take them And friends, and so, something seeds rubbed off on you, so you invite your friends, and you invite your friends. This way we can help one another.
Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of thing that we this is we we discuss these kind of things in great detail from so many angles of vision here that we fortify that understanding so that intelligence becomes just gripped by that understanding. Then it's very difficult for the mind and the senses to distract one to this these pursuits within the virtual reality. One becomes a master then of the mind, master of the senses. Let me just think about it. Do you ever do something? Thought comes in your mind and says, do this. Do you ever do something like following that thought that would, with your intelligence, if you were to think about it for a moment, you know it's not good for you? You ever do that? Is there ever a time that you don't do that? <laughs> That's how bad it gets. You see? This is what's happening. Some desire comes in the mind, and the quiet voice of intellect in the background says, That's not good. Yeah, and we just plot that out and go and do that. And then we later on, You know, I do that for God. It doesn't make me happy. It brought so many problems and so forth. We're doing these kind of things on so many levels all the time. This is our condition. We're not even functioning according to reason, what to speak of spiritually. We're just in the grips of this thing called mind, which gets information through the senses, like I was talking about. It registers these mixed determination, and I'm just like madly following it. Make a philosophy out of it, even. Why it's good that I do that. <laughs> this, is, this is the predicament that we find ourselves in. So this is, I speak to you with some urgency. Urgency. What's to be had? What the value of your human life is? We, we've come to this point. We are in human bodies. We can think about these things. You know, Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, right? It was a good thought. Because I think, I am. It means that in human life, nature wakes up to the fact that it has a soul. The tree is also alive. There's consciousness that makes the matter move. Matter doesn't move on its own. In relation to consciousness, it moves. So it's growing because there's life in there. But that life can't think that it is at that point. Consciousness is life. Consciousness is an animal body. Animals don't think, I am. Why am I? That thought does not arise until the soul comes to the human form of life. Then this thought arises. Why am I? Why am I? What am I? Why? This should be answered. Human life should be spent for answering this. And if we reason about it, we're said to be rational animals, so if we reason about why do I exist, we'll come to the conclusion that I can arrive, cannot arrive at a conclusion by just thinking about it. Just by exercising intelligence alone, I cannot arrive at the conclusion. I can theorize about the conclusion, but I have to do something more. In other words, we'll arrive at the conclusion that intellect has its limitations also. Therefore, we need a transrational method of knowing. 
trans means like above, transcendental, above reason, beyond reason, a way of knowing that's beyond reason. That is what this chanting, for example, that we do is about. It's not a rational exercise. You understand? I mean, there's reasoning behind it, and we can explain why it makes sense, and so forth, but the actual exercise itself is not an exercise of reason. It's reasoned out the value of it, and then it's done. But the actual exercise is not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. And these mantras we chant, of course, they, they, they come from up to down. Hmm? Combinations of sound that are pregnant with, with spiritual meaning. They effectively stop this, the mind and the senses from going outward. They suspend them from this outward pursuit within the virtual reality and allow the self to come out and experience itself. And wow, that's like, wow, what am I? Wow. A soul, what is that? It's incredible experience. This is what, what we have the opportunity to do as human beings. Look at us, there's a, just a few of us sitting here talking about these things. One, two, three, four, five, six of us. What's my point? How many other living beings are there here? How many trees are there? Can't count them, right? It's all life. We're sitting in a forest, so many other living beings. But there's only six of us here talking about this, these secrets. Shh. Nobody else knows. This is coming to us. How is it coming to us? Through good association? We're being let in on a secret. Valuable secret. Well, what should we do with that? We should take that, keep that, and spend that secret. Secret wisdom, we should spend it. That's the wealth of this life. It's not money, it's the wealth of this life. It's not a, a, a relationship. That's not the wealth. Fame, that's not the wealth. This is the wealth. Nothing to be compared to this. Now we are talking about it in theory, to realize it, to take the practices by which it's experienced, and know Wealth, renunciation is wealth. Renunciation means to give up. How can you give up all those things? There must be some wealth. must have something better. Understand? How can you give up the pursuit of everything in the virtual reality that everybody's so interested in? must have some inner wealth. Everybody can't live here as a monk, as a renunciate. But everybody should be associated with such people and pursue that in the context of their own life under good guidance, so that they may gradually realize that wealth. This is your inheritance. What I'm talking to you about is something that you already have. You already have it. But you don't know it. You have an inheritance. But you have to grow up a little bit to get it. That's all. You have to grow up. Act in a responsible way. Then it will be given to you. Yes, you can spend it. Here we are, looking. You come here, I tell you, there's a, tre a treasure. You own a treasure. Valuable treasure. And if you, you are that treasure, find yourself. Become a miner. Excavate. Dig within. Go within. 
Look inside, not outside. And there are tools for that. Tools for that. That is, that is what yoga is about. And teachers. So again, I speak to you with some urgency. Here we are, passing through lives as trees, as plants, as birds, as bees, as animals of human life. How you use it will determine your next life. If you use it in pursuit of your wealth, you'll be wealthy in this life and in the next life. And you know what? There will be no more lives. You will live as you are rather than thinking you are this in that life and that in another life and this in a third life, life after life, life missing the point. Here's a chance to get it. Get it. Do something about it. End death. To end death. This is an illusion. Death. Why is death a problem? Because we're attached to things we can't keep, so it's a problem. If you're not attached to things that can't be kept, because you have inherited the wealth of what you are, death is not a problem. It's only a problem because we are plugged into the virtual reality. One plug. Problem solved. Is that, you think that's a good thing? Do they teach that at the humble state? How to stop death? Um, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> that is real education. How to stop death. Is there anything more important? I mean, we're trying to do that all the time. We're trying to live. Even though the environment is making it difficult. We're aging with every breath and coming closer to death. When you're young, you don't feel it as much, but that's the problem. <laughs> this is the solution to that. How valuable that is. That's only one side of it to stop the problem. But we don't just stop the problem by this. Then what, what is really a, what is really valuable you get also. It's very important. It's very um, auspicious that you have come all this way. <laughs>